Needham to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wife, who will be here shortly, and my tech team who are working behind the scenes to stream this, and I so appreciate them. Today, you don't want to miss out. We have Dr. David Crawford. He is an orthopedic surgeon with JIS Orthopedics in Ohio, and he is going to be discussing affordable cash bundled options for orthopedic surgery. You might be surprised. We hear all the numbers about how expensive surgery can be, even orthopedic surgery. I had um, a personal example of that with my son a few last year, last May, when he fractured his tibia, a compound fracture, and local hospital here charged him $47,000. And there were all kinds of s- surprise bills and wasn't very transparent. They had no idea what the price was. So I contacted Dr. Keith Smith um, a few weeks later and asked him what his price would be. Dr. Keith Smith is the co-founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. We talk about him often here, and he is a cash surgery center there that works on bundled pricing. Also, his price was $8,000. So Dr. Crawford's going to give us some examples of how there are big, big differences in um, um, how you can find affordable health care, whether it be a local hospital or whether it be a surgery center like his, there's a big difference in pricing. It's important for consumers to shop around for price. So, and quality, and he's going to talk about that too. So, Dr. Crawford, welcome to our show. Well, Sean, thank you for having me. I look forward to it. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about um, your surgery center, and tell us about a little bit about yourself. Then we'll get into some of the the specialty cash bundled pricing that we were discussing. Sure. Um, as we were talking about offline, I had a little different path than most probably to where I am. I joined the military uh, through medical school, did my training in the army, and then uh, served four years after that. So I really got to experience true government healthcare, uh, and then did fellowship after uh, the military at JS Orthopedics, where I stayed on. And our practice here for many years was just joint replacement. So Dr. Lombardi, well, Dr. Mallory is our founder. Um, he has since passed, but Dr. Lombardi carried on after that. Dr. Barron for many years were just uh, two here doing joints. Then we started expanding, doing more sports stuff. I brought in some sports uh, for my military career, and then we brought on a spine surgeon and recently a hand surgeon. So. We're growing. We don't want to get too big, uh, but we bring the, the breadth of that. And the surgery center uh, that uh, opened in 2013, uh, White Fence Surgical Suites, uh, was the really the baby of Keith Barron and you know, building into the outpatient joint space. And at that time, it was a very novel thing to do. Uh, people were poo-pooing it. Everyone said their patients weren't you know, healthy enough to go outpatient. You can't do it the same day. But we did. And we did thousands and thousands, and we just passed, I think, 12,000 outpatient joints uh, recently here. And, and we've shown how it can be done safely. And ultimately, the patient experience is better. You know, we have direct you know, relationships with all the staff. Uh, we have some supervision over them. So when people are not performing, we have some input. And they just the staff here tend to enjoy life better, and that, I think, is transcendent onto the patient experience. And I see my patients a lot more. You know, when I see them in pre-op holding, I can say hi to them. I do a surgery. They're in the PACU, you know, holding area. And I see them probably five or six times. Whereas if I did it at a hospital, I'd see them in pre-op and then maybe not to the end of the day if I you know, did afternoon rounds. And with that, though, it's, you know, the ability to get lean and be efficient with your both your economics of the center and also your time. And with that, then lends itself to a more affordable model. We're all aware that you know, even insurance and Medicare reimbursement is less to the center. Uh, but the cost is, you know, significantly lower uh, to just do the joint, uh, just because the footprint of the center, um, the staffing that we do, and again the efficiencies. 
So, it, you know, the white fence has been around uh, again for you know, eight years and we kind of got into the more cash bundled market at a higher level within the past few years, but have been doing it somewhat in the past as well. So Janet, do you, welcome to our show, Janet. <laughs> welcome to your show. Uh, so Janet, do you have any comment for Dr. Crawford? I mentioned that our son had orthopedics experience in a local hospital here um, last year. Do you have any comments about um, how that experience was based on how it might've been on an outpatient in an outpatient surgery center? Right. So our experience was really not that fun because for one, we were, um, we should have been more outpatient than what we were. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the care that you receive, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the surgeon did a good job because I believe he did, but just access to your providers, I think is much different. So, um, I, I really would like you to focus on how, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about it, but how much time do you say you get besides just you see them, but it is being able to explain the surgery and how they did during the surgery. Is that much different than when you were in the hospital? Because I think that's really what consumers want to know is like, what quality is this going to make for me and what outcomes are better. And, and I think, you know, Sean and I kind of see that, but the consumer wants to, to know the quality because we sometimes have the misunderstanding that if we go to this big building and institution that we're safer. So why is it, you know, better in your, your setting? Well, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, I guess <laughs> I'll start question. with the, the long question with, but I guess I'll start with the personnel issue. And I think and I've listened to your podcast. I think everyone's on the same agreement that there's great people that work in the hospitals. There's great nurses, Absolutely. there's great surgeons and no one, I don't think anyone has an issue with that. It's the experience and the culture and it's the bureaucracy that comes with large institutions that is ineffective to make meaningful change in a rapid basis. There are so many silos of oversight that if I have an issue, you know, say a nurse is doing something wrong, I can't go directly to that person. I have to go up the chain here and down to the nursing manager over here. Or if we want to change, you know, a suture, you have to go to some VAC committee and whatnot. So the, that it, because of the, the size of a, you know, and even especially like an academic institution, you know, we have at a surgery center, one nurse that calls all of our patients the day before surgery. That same nurse typically calls all those patients the day after surgery. Mm-hmm. When you're at a big hospital and that nurse who's calling probably never even interacted with that patient. They don't know who they are. So there's that lack, lack of personal touch. You know, our surgery center is right above our you know, office. We're very fortunate in that. And sometimes the staff will come downstairs and talk to patients in our office. And there's just that continuity of, I think, of the personal touch. But ultimately, why, you know, we believe a surgeon's experience is better is because the accountability. And I mentioned that before. Um, but we, you know, have direct change. And, and there's not a ton of us that are at the center. And if something's not going right, we can hop on a call in five minutes, make a change. And all of a sudden, processes are different the next day. We want to change injections or we want to change an irrigation solution or cement. Um, it's a leaner way to make an effective change. To the safety issue, there is this false sense that, you know, your big institution has a lot of things that, you know, protect you. And people always say, well, how are you going to, you know, prevent blood clots if they do want to, you know, identify it if you do it as an outpatient at surgery center? Well, when do most blood clots happen? They don't happen on post-up day one or two from total joints. They typically peak around day seven and then again around day 28. So unless your patient was planning on staying in the hospital anyway for seven days, you're not going to identify anything. Um, 
you know, the patient experience of getting labs drawn unnecessarily. We've looked at this and whether we even need to get labs, you know, they're getting woken up five times in the middle of the night. Things that we historically have done that we know really doesn't impact the, the safety of it. And, you know, the, the, probably the biggest, you know, fear patients have is pain control, right? Because they're, they're at home, you know, are they going to be able to control their pain? Are they going to get readmitted? Or the surgeon's going to get phone calls in the middle of the night? And we have found that not to be the case. And we looked at a large series of patients, only 0.3% of patients stayed overnight for pain control issues. So it's actually a very small percentage that has that need. So the, and then if you look at, you know, what we do, our surgery center is two ORs. It is all, you know, vast majority just orthopedics. We've got a few EMT folks and plastic surgeons that do uh, surgery on occasion. But we're not taking patient care of patients with pneumonia, with sepsis, with bad bacterial diseases. You know, yes, they may be separated on floors at hospitals. Um, but the ORs are not having, to, you know, typically infected cases. So really, the, the the scope of our patient base is a much healthier one. So you know, that's when you know, we look at safety. I'd say probably number one, two, and three that we worry about in joint replacement specifically is infection. Um, you know, there's patient falls and all that sort of stuff. But you know, we really want to look at controlling infection. So you know, if I'm if I'm doing a case at the surgery center with staff that knows exactly what I'm doing, you know, I could do a total knee in 25 minutes with you know, open to the air and tourniquet up. Now, our hospital next door, it will be fully transparent. It's actually very good because it was built as a specialty hospital that only did orthopedics, so it's not that much different. But when we go to tertiary hospitals that we don't aren't there all the time, I mean, it is literally double the case time. I mean, it's, you know, an, you know, 45, 50 minutes that the knee's open to the world. And then there's, there's a direct linear relationship of the amount of operating room time to infection. Um, and then it's the people you work with. We don't work with those anesthesiologists as often. They you know, don't know how to do the blocks consistently. Um, and just again, the patient experience is different. So the, the quality comes down to, I think, a lot of oversight, a lot of direct input from the surgeons, having accountability from the team. And then all that does lead into the, you know, the synergy that happens that creates efficiency. Because efficiency is not us moving our hands fast, it is doing you know, the least amount of steps to get the outcome that we need. And when you have a great team around you, you can do that. So how can you have higher quality and lower price? Well, you know, we often struggle with defining quality. You know, what metric are we using? You know, and that's, you know, the price thing I will obviously dive into, um, and that can be controlled by direct and indirect costs. But are we looking at infection risk as a quality metric? Sure. Are you looking at pain scores? Maybe. Are you looking at patient satisfaction with their experience? Did they like the staff? That's a different one. Are you looking at their range of motion six weeks after surgery, you know, done at the center versus not? Are you looking at patient reported outcome measures? Uh, that's a big thing, obviously, in our world of looking at you know, patient reported scoring systems. So the, the things that we can, can do to improve the quality aspect of that, again, is one, gathering that data, which is easier to do at our center. We use a app that all the patients log into. We can actually track, we can send them questionnaires, which we can't do at the hospital. We can actually communicate with them uh, in messaging platforms via uh, our center, which we don't do at the hospital. So that part of a quality experience is, is better. I uh, already kind of hit on the infection side of things. And again, it's not that the infection rate is high at the hospital. I don't want to you know, pose that, but um, that quality metric is better. Um, the uh, Most of the times, you know, patients, all they do is they see the incision. They don't know what you did during surgery. They don't know what really is inside, you know, their hip or knee or whatever it is. They just know how they felt. And that's, you know, whether it's seeing me in the office and I'm sitting down rather than standing up, whether I'm looking in them in the eyes, not scaring a computer, you know, that I think drives a lot of a patient perception of quality uh, from that uh, respect, but then also just tracking data and being realistic about your data. 
you know, we both at the center and in our practice, you know, track all the time. What is our 30 day readmission rate? What is our um, revision rates? What are our, you know, pain scores, uh, any readmissions? And we, you know, are very active at keeping those as low as possible. And that hurt us when we were looking at the bundle payment with Medicare. We were already so efficient that they couldn't, you know, give us a bundle that we would actually have any room to make any money. I mean, it's amazing seeing compared to the other groups. So, I mean, it's great for us. Uh, but those steps, you know, are all driven to a quality metric. The cost part is, you know, being competitive. I think the harder part is communicating that quality outcome with patients on a scale by which they can understand. And that's the difficulty if you look at this, you know, say free market, a true travelocity model where we just have a you know, list of prices. You know, what scoring? How many stars do you use? Is, it, is that what we're going to go by? Google reviews? Are we going to actually post a whole complex uh, spreadsheet of different metrics that they want to see? I don't know. And that's where maybe it's, you know, look at some of the third party companies we work with where it's more of a travel agent model where the travel agent has a little higher touch on each of the practices and can spend some more time talking to patients where they still have a lot of options, but you know, this place is $1,000 more. However, if you look, their you know, revision rates are slightly lower. Their infection rates are slightly lower. And, you know, let the patients and or their um, you know, self-insured business, which is most of where this falls in our purview, uh, make those decisions. So will you back up a little bit on the Medicare thing? So you basically got penalized from Medicare because you guys were more efficient. Is that what you were saying? We didn't get in the bundle. So, you know, when BPCI uh, A came out, um, they do a historic run and all the conveners, you know, kind of organize this. And there's you know, a bunch of different conveners that you know, would run these models. And I forget the exact number, but let me say ballpark, our practices average total cost of care. So they take in, you know, SNF utilization, physical therapy utilization, which are the big post-acute uh, numbers that drive that up. And they create a historic number. And then your bundle, which you get thrown into then is based on that and with a goal to decrease it. So we were something around like 19,000, I think from a historic model, maybe it's a little bit less than that. The hospital that is down in Athens, Ohio, which uh, one of our uh, partners works at, we don't do really cases there anymore, their bundle price was going to come in at $28,000 you know, for the same surgeries. So we hadn't really nowhere to move down. And there was a number of other reasons why we didn't jump into it because they don't, didn't cover partial knees. Uh, we typically do knees six weeks apart if we're doing both and you have two knees under a bundle. But ultimately, our room for error for improvement to making it financially meaningful with all the headaches that would go along with it and then also waiting you know, a year and a half to get paid on the uh, upside was just not there. So it was kind of incentivizing really low efficiency places to get enrolled and just try to make a little bit better. And those that were already efficient, there was no bonus of, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Let's just pay you more because you are doing a good job. That That's that's interesting, <laughs> you know, how that some people for being inefficient can actually be rewarded for it. That's kind of how a government system works sometimes, huh? Well, when I was in the military, we were judged by our OR utilization, which was the amount of time that the patients were in the operating room. So if I want to be the most efficient or most productive surgeon, I would bring a patient in the operating room at 7 a.m. and I wouldn't leave until 3 p.m. And I would do one case and I would have 100% utilization. And that would be the best metric of anyone in the system. Whereas if I knocked out three total joints and was done by noon or 11, you know, you underutilized your room. So it's just, it's, you know, very backward metrics by which the government sometimes, you know, evaluates things. Right. So were there surgeons that took advantage of that and they would do stay in surgery six hours to meet <laughs> no, those No, I don't numbers? think intention, intentionally. I mean, there's some folks right, that right. You know, weren't very efficient. But I mean, then it gets to some other incentive models. And, you know, I got paid the same when I was doing six cases a day and someone else was doing one. I would see about 30 patients in the office and I had a partner that would see five. 
And, and you got paid staff the same. That, you got paid the same. And the staff was there from seven to whatever it was, regardless. If you started running late, anesthesia would just cut your OR time. So, you know, the case is canceled because we're not going over this time frame. People were just clocking in, clocking out. Um, and again, there was very good people and it's not, they're just incentives weren't aligned to right. behave any differently. So that's why in a surgery center at a free market, like your surgery center, when you're competing with bundled pricing and, um, employers that are looking for less expensive options, you can't get away with stuff like that. Nope. And it's, you know, we've had a lot of discussions and again, looking at what is the true cost, uh, of doing these surgeries and what's, you know, what is an appropriate margin. And there's been studies where they've been, you know, surveys sent out to patients. What do you think your, your uh, joint surgeon gets paid for a total knee replacement? And most people come around $10,000. They think what we get paid and it's, you know, it's not a big mystery. You go on Medicare you know, rates, you know, and it's about 1300 or, or a little less. And then you got, you know, 50% overhead for practice or whatever else you're doing. So it's not that we're not making anything, but, you know, who's doing all the work and when the centers, um, and that's why it's important to have physician alignment with the centers and physician ownership, yeah. uh, because then there's mutual, you know, benefit, you know, when I, when I'm dealing with these folks traveling, you know, I just talked to a patient from Idaho who's going to have a, a knee replacement and they're a self-insured a part of a self-insured employer group. Um, you know, the price that we are uh, going to be charging is half of what they would be getting locally. Um, but it takes me a lot of time. I'm reviewing their medical records in advance. I'm talking to the patient. I'm making medical decision making. I've got a lot of staff I'm paying to help coordinate all this care. And where we found kind of the bundling model being beneficial is running it through our practice and then back out to the center where you know, obviously the surgery center in Oklahoma is more of a center-based you know, relationship and kind of paying down to the surgeons, which can work you know, just fine. But you know, at the end, who's doing all the work? Who's taking the, the brunt of the risk exposure? You know, typically a, a center is not getting sued if there's a you know, malpractice claim unless it was something directly related to the center. Um, so I think you know, repositioning the the you know incentives to the surgeon uh, can bring more into this market. And I'd rather do less joints and do them you know, have more patient interaction time. You know, I don't you know, if I could drop down to doing half the joints and you know making just as much money, you know, I don't need to make more. But to be able to have that uh, experience with the patients would be great. Well, I also think it probably gives you more incentive as a provider, too, to have good communication skills with your patient, because I think that sometimes lacks in a big institution that we don't get to connect with the patient like we should or could. And um, the other comment I want to make is, you know, everybody's experience is different. You know, a 18-year-old boy with a, a surgeon or surgery is going to have a different outcome than an 80-year-old lady. So, the cookie cutter doesn't fit, you know, what Jordan had probably had 20 more questions than my mother would. Um, and that would be just partly their personality. She was a nurse and he's a young kid, you know, so um, that opens your world up to actually being, you know, interactive with the client and the patient. Um, so the outcomes, I believe, probably are going to be different with those interactions. Yeah, and I think this also you know, it puts onus on me as a surgeon to, you know, I'm selling myself. I mean, when patients have choice, right. I mean, granted, our, our patients do have choice if they have commercial insurance or Medicare. I don't, you know, can't say they don't. But when, you know, someone's shopping around and I really look at it through a, a concierge lens, you know, people are, if they're traveling, especially, and they're taking their time to do this, I want to give them the best experience possible. And just my, my bandwidth is only so wide. I c couldn't do that with every patient I see, you know, in its current state. Uh, but being able to sit down and answer those questions, give you know the patient extra time, 
Um, you know, the folks that do travel in, I you know call them more often uh, than my other patients and check up on them, especially when they're back home, because I mean they're probably scared that they're you know right not right around the corner and they can come in our office if they need to. Um, and it's just been a it's been a wonderful experience. You know, I, I just get to know the patients better. Uh, know more about their lives. You know, sometimes we'll have you know twenty-minute conversations on the way home when I'm you know, leaving work, and it's uh, it's very enjoyable. So, speaking of enjoyable, what is one of the most dramatic or enjoyable cases that you've had that really just um, made you realize that you're a you're an orthopedic surgeon? Oh gosh, well, I can go way back in the middle. I mean, I, the most gratifying, absolutely, is my time in the military. Um, I mean, taking care of these amazing guys and. I was at uh, Fort Lewis for residency, and they had the you know, 275 Rangers there, uh, first group, special forces. When I was at uh, Fort Campbell, we had a, a 101st Airborne, 5th Special Forces group, and then 160th. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's a different experience than now. I mean, these are yes, sir, yes, you know, no, sir, will do. You know, great patients. They, you know, it was tragic to see some of the injuries, and I see a lot going on right now. I'll bring back a lot of memories on that. Um, but, you know, they're so motivated, and, you, know, you do a surgery on a guy and one of the team guys from you know fifth group like well can you deploy deploy next week no you gotta wait um wow so that you know from my, i think experiential uh, aspect of my life was the best patient group but you know we were talking about this before i'd say the most dramatic surgery i do to this day is uh hip replacements I mean, patients with hip arthritis are miserable and typically within one or two days after that surgery they're not perfect yet but they're so much better and that is one of the biggest quality of life uh, impacts that I can make on patients. Knee patients are a little tougher, uh, but most hip patients forget they had a hip replacement by three months after. They're back to doing pretty much everything they want to do. And I get more, you've changed my life. You know, I haven't been like this for years for my hip replacement patients. Uh, so as I was mentioned to you before, if I could just do that surgery, that's all I do. Wow, that's, that is cool. So tell us, who is the... What would a typical hip patient be? I mean, for, for your practice, what would a typical hip patient look like? I'll tell you, it's changing. And, you know, part of it's changing, I think, because I guess my tolerance and other surgeons' tolerance of doing them on younger patients. Uh, you know, historically, and it's you know, we're getting the weeds a little bit of some you know, orthopedic manufacturing, but the polyethylene plastic uh, back in the 90s and even 2000s was not the best. And so there were, you know, those parts can wear out. And so if you're 50 years old, you know, the, you know, we'd like to put you off as long as you know possible. I mean, some places had a hard stops. If you're not 65, you're not getting a joint replacement. Uh, but with our, you know, changes in some of the manufacturing, our surgeries are less invasive. We're more comfortable patients getting back to their life. We're not putting that off. So it is a breath. I mean, I've done, you know, I got a hip replacement on next week at a 25-year-old, which is terrible, but there's no other option. I mean, it's probably one of the worst hips I've seen. Um, and we've got, you know, 95 year olds, uh, you know, same thing with all the joints. So it's a, it's a wider range. I mean, the median age still sits around 64.5 years old, um, and short replacement. Uh, but even the, you know, the, the comfort level of doing outpatients in, in 80 year olds, you know, the, the age isn't as important as just their health, their home support. Um, and yeah, you know, I always, the conversation I have with patients, you know, probably the typical, more challenging one is like the 50 year old. He's got a bad hip. Like, well, I'm okay, but I'm, I'm not playing with my kids. I'm not doing doubles tennis that I want to do. I can manage by not doing all that stuff. And I'm like, well, listen, if I can get you back to doing most all those things, and when you're 70, we have to revise this, you know, if I can give you 20 years of doing good and it's probably going to be just as fine after revise it. And what's the recovery time for um, a, a total hip? I know it depends on the age and health of the patient, but on average. 
Yeah, um, you know, you know, most of our joint placements are done on the same day outpatient or center. Even the ones done at the hospital, we still try to get folks to go home as long as they're, you know, doing well and have a good home support with them. Uh, usually on a walker for a week or so. Some folks even less than that, and then get onto a cane. Uh, I think probably about three or four weeks is when patients see the biggest dramatic change, and they're just kind of ditching all the assistive devices. I just talked to a patient I did. Uh, last Wednesday, and he was off narcotics by Sunday, which we're, that's another drive we're going down to minimizing that. Uh, but most all patients walk in our office at six weeks, you know, feeling good, not really having too much issues at all and pain. And but if you say get back to everything, it's probably more three months. And that's really just, you know, patient specific and their demands and what they want. And if they're you know, working at a desk job, they can get back sooner. But if they're in a manufacturer and standing and they don't have the ability to take breaks as much, then they may be more toward three months. But still, that's, considering how debilitating a bad hip can be i've heard patients that have had it and they've suffered with it for years three months is not that long to wait no uh the, the most common thing we hear again more, more so after hip replacement is i wish i would have done this earlier yeah. and when they've got both hips or knees that are bad usually they don't wait as long for the second one to to do it so what about knee you said knees they don't recover as well is that is that kind of what you were alluding to yeah, it's something we, you know, we've got a big annual meeting coming up, leaving tomorrow for San Diego. And it's the topic of all the, you know, historically, there's been 20% of knee replacements that, you know, are unsatisfied or not as satisfied. And it's because, I mean, the hip joint is just a ball and socket joint. All we really need is the implants to grow in and then the patient's just to move. And there's not much functional kinematics that we're worrying about. Whereas the knees, although it's just a hinge joint, there's more complex balancing of the, the ligaments uh, trying to get range of motion back. It's much more important to have you know, range of motion in your knee and the hips are really stiff. And so it can be more of a challenge. And I think that's where, and patients do tolerate knee arthritis a little more and they get to more end stage disease before they typically have surgery. Uh, so it, it is very important doing the right surgery on the right patient. And I think that's where probably a lot of those numbers historically on an aggregate you know, registry level, it's, you know, did those patients need surgery to begin with? Um, was it, would there have been a better option? The caveat to the being is that uh, I and our practice are a very big partial knee replacement practice. So doing partial knees, the most common is on the medial or inside part of the knee. And those patients do very well and pretty much akin to the hips. Uh, so about 30% of my practice, about 50% of Dr. Barron, one of my senior partners practices, partial knees of the knee practice. So that uh, if I have to make one caveat, I would just do total hips and partial knees. So partial knee is probably better than a total knee in most cases. If you're a candidate, I mean, it's not yeah. the right surgery if you're not a candidate. If you got lateral disease, you know, patellofemoral disease, and lateral facet or no ACL, not the right surgery. So, what do you counsel your patients on, whether it be hip or whether it be uh, total knees or um, any joint for that matter? Um, what do you do before surgery? What happens if they are overweight? Do you counsel them on losing weight first, and their surgery will be their recovery will be better? And that would be the ideal scenario. Um, you know, we we do not have a strict BMI cutoff at our practice. I know the Ohio State has a, I think 35, or maybe, I think it's 35, but maybe 40 BMI. Uh, and there's no question that the surgery is harder. The risks are higher. Infection is uh, close to double in most of the studies. Wow. Um, but then if you look at our infection risk at, you know, we were 0.03% last year at the center. Uh, double is 0.06%. Not that it's great that it's double, it's still very low. Right. Um, 
And if you look at the change in quality of life in our outcome scores, obese patients never get as high as a non-obese, but they started much lower and their delta change is much greater. So it's really, a, you know, if someone's 75 years old or let's say 65, they've been obese their entire life, they've been way overweight, they're, they're not going to, I mean, unless they're going to have bariatric surgery, which is fine, and we send folks to do that, they're not going to change. And so it's, you know, do, am I comfortable with their other health issues that I'm willing to take on that risk? Uh, I'm very frank with them. And if they, you know, in the shared decision-making, understand that, whether they truly understand that's a different question than these usually nod their head and like, yeah, I get it. Right. I don't know what it means to have an affected joint, but, um, you know, it is challenging, you know, whatever the patient's other health issues are. Uh, but I, I think it's, it is sad to see some patients and especially younger ones who are really overweight and they've been turned down by five surgeons and they can't you know, function. They can't hold a job. Um, at some level, I just don't think that's fair. Yeah, that's, that, that's a tragic situation for sure. So as we wind this podcast up, Dr. Crawford, um, our goal of this podcast is to educate and empower individuals to be in charge of their own health care. That also means financially. So mm-hmm. how can you add to that? What would you say to patients when it comes to looking for um, orthopedic surgery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the pure cash model is an interesting one because it probably doesn't represent a very large portion of our you know, economy and the free market healthcare, if you will. It's mostly driven by the self-insured employers, which is the about 60% of the employers in this company do self or countries self-insure. Um, but hopefully the patients are empowered to help make that decision and make a good decision. So I'd say the, the cost comes down to probably what's, you know, what is their, you know, what are they capable of doing? I mean, maybe at some point they say, I only have 16,000 period and I got to find someone to do it for 16,000. You know, maybe they have a little more flexibility with their job. Uh, I, I would try or challenge at least the patients as best they can to, you know, find surgeons with good reputations, groups that have been around for a long time who deliver quality care, uh, whether that's getting data from their uh, that group specifically and having questions. What is your infection rate? What was your dislocation rate for a hip? Uh, what's your readmission rate? Because more importantly for the, you know, self-insured businesses, that's a metric that they don't necessarily see when they're looking at just the upfront bundle cost. If you say, oh, it's you know $18,500 for total hip, but that patient gets readmitted or goes to a hospital a week later, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, who knows? That could be fifty, sixty thousand dollars and depends on what their stop loss is, you know, what they're on the hook for. So those are the the metrics that that's, that's what we get vetted for when we're going with these groups to help arrange this, is they, they don't want to just look at what our cost is. They want to you know, really pull that data uh, of what our overall you know episode of care cost is out out 90 days and even greater, um, because these businesses are on the hook for it. And especially outcomes, that's probably one of the most important, right? Yep, absolutely. You know, for productivity of an employee if they're paying for it. Yep. So, okay, so um, what do you have a passion for, Dr. Crawford? What, what drives you? Uh, I think innovation. Uh, I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by very entrepreneurial and innovative uh, senior partners who've led this you know, field for a long time. Dr. Lombardi, I don't know how many patents he has, but designed many knees. They were innovators in the outpatient space. Um, and we're innovators in partial knee space, anterior hip, outpatient joints, and getting into this. And it's just fun. I mean, I, I think joint replacement especially can get monotonous, although I love it all the time. It's just doing cool things. And that's where, you know, being in a private practice, I'm, I'm afforded that privilege to go do that and be, be entrepreneurial. Uh, whereas if your hands are tied in an academic institution, despite your best efforts, sometimes there's no reward. Well, it's obvious that you enjoy what you're doing and you do have a passion for it. Um, I was really surprised when um, you said that you could do total hips all day long because I know doctors in hospital systems that 
despise doing total hips. So I don't know. Send if my way. A, I'll do it for him. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know if it's a system they're in or if it's a personal issue or what. But, uh, you know, so um, that's I, I, that's really reassuring that, that you really enjoy what you're doing. Because if doctors don't enjoy what they're doing, then they're not going to do a very good job at it. That's my opinion for sure. And I think there's been a lot of studies to, to show that too. So, so Dr. Crawford, what is the best way if anybody has questions or they want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to find you? Sure. Website is uh, jisortho.com, and uh, you can get some information there about our practice. Uh, if there are employers uh, that want to get in touch with us, too, you can certainly do that. Uh, phone number is 614-221-6331, and those are the two direct ways. And anything bundle-related, everyone in our group knows to hunt me down because I've uh, been running the show for a while. I certainly look forward to taking care of any patients that out there that need help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. I, I really, really appreciate it, Dr. Crawford. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Wednesday, actually. Wednesday morning, I will have pharmacist, fellow pharmacist Ben Fuchs on, and he will be discussing how to keep your immune system healthy, along with some other things. Uh, we we speak the same language, and if you've been listening to me long enough, you, you know that I'm kind of uh, a renegade pharmacist, and I, and I don't, I don't really – you know, Jen, I don't embrace traditional medication. We, 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 we embrace lifestyle changes and so does Ben Fuchs. So you don't want to miss out Wednesday, eight to 9 a.m. Dr. Crawford, thank you for listening. Thank you for, for uh, your podcast, for joining us today and listeners and viewers. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. 